The specialty stories is part of the MedEd Media Network at MEDEDmedia.com. This is the Specialty Stories Podcast, session number 16. Whether you're a pre-med or medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information you need to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. And welcome back or welcome to the Specialty Stories podcast if this is your first time here. Thank you for joining me. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray and I'm the host here at the Specialty Stories podcast as well as many other podcasts on the MedEd Media Network. If you're a pre-med student, I have a bunch of shows for you to listen to. Just go check out everything we have to offer over at mededmedia.com. That's M-E-D-E-D-Media.com. This week is one of our first weeks where we are doubling up on a specialty. And I guess doubling up isn't the right word. We are re-engaging or, or we're doing something with a specialty uh, and covering it again. And this is my goal with specialty stories. So nephrology we covered back in episode six of the specialty stories podcast. And when I spoke to Dr. Roby, she is a private practice nephrologist. And the nephrologist, Dr. Toff, that we're going to talk to today is also a private practice nephrologist, but is involved in academics as well. And we'll ask some of the academic questions. You're going to hear some differences. Go back and listen to episode six and then, or, or listen to this one and then go back and listen to episode six. And you'll hear some differences in both of those settings. And that was my goal for this podcast. Not only giving you insight into what a cardiologist does and a nephrologist does, but what are those differences between an academic nephrologist and a community nephrologist? What are the differences, or private practice nephrologist, what are the differences between a community cardiologist and academic cardiologist? As you go through your medical training, most of the exposure that you get is the academic side of medicine, and that is not the majority of medicine that is practiced. And so I wanted to give you some insight into all of the different aspects. And so you'll you'll get to hear that for the first time here, being able to compare before back in episode six, a private practice nephrologist, and now here in episode 16, a more of an academic nephrologist. So let's go ahead and dive right in. Uh, my name is uh, Joel Toff, and I'm a clinical nephrologist. And are you in an academic setting or community setting? I am in a hybrid setting. I work for a private practice, but we've been hired by the hospital to run their fellowship program. And I do teaching for uh, medical students, uh, second years, third years, fourth years, and the residency program. Uh, It's not a pure academic position. I don't do a lot of research. um, or uh, We do some, uh, but that's not a primary part of my job. Okay. How long have you been practicing? Uh, I finished fellowship in 2003. Okay, so a little while. When did you know you wanted to be a nephrologist? So coming out of medical school, I wanted to do a uh, specialty that would allow me to subspecialize. I kind of always thought, kept that in the back of my mind. So I chose med peds. Um, 
And then probably in the second year uh, or third year of residency, it's a four-year residency, I really came to the conclusion that I wanted to do a fellowship and specialize in nephrology specifically. What do you think led to that decision? So uh, the thing about medicine is that the more you learn about one subject, the more that same subject becomes fami- uh, uh, enjoyable. And so it's kind of like these uh, these gravity wells. So you got to be careful what you start studying because you never know what you start studying becomes more interesting. And then you start studying it more and it becomes even more interesting. And before you know it, you can't escape. And so that was what happened to me in nephrology. I, I'm totally delighted with it. And I love the field that I did. But uh, uh, I was working on another project um, uh, writing a textbook on fluids and electrolytes. So I was reading a lot of uh, nephrology, learning a lot of renal physiology, and I just fell in love with it. And by the time I was choosing my specialty, I kind of felt like uh, nephrology had picked me more than I had picked nephrology. There was just nothing else I would ever consider doing. Were there any, at that time, were there any other specialties that were in the running? There weren't, though uh, I think... uh, had I had a more open mind, critical care would have been something I would have really considered. But I'm I'm happy in nephrology. I see I, I see a lot of a lot of the very interesting cases that I like in nephrology are shared with critical care, uh, extreme electrolyte abnormalities for one. Okay, what traits do you think lead to being a good nephrologist? So the most important one is uh, being detail oriented, right, and being uh, fastidious, right. Like there's a uh, a lot of numbers and uh, a lot of balls to keep in the air when you take care of these patients. All of our patients have a number of problems, uh, especially when it comes to dialysis or transplant patients. Uh, Most other primary care doctors and other specialists want to take a hands-off approach to them and leave it all up to the nephrologist to take care of that. And so you end up being uh, a generalist for a wide span of patients, everybody that's on dialysis and most patients that have had a kidney transplant. And so even though you spend much of your time uh, focusing on nephrology, at least in training, uh, you still need to keep your internal medicine skills uh, sharp. And in fact, I've recertified in internal medicine, okay. not just not just got my nephrology boards. Yeah. Describe a typical day for you. So um, I usually will start my day at uh, an outpatient dialysis clinic or two. Um, The uh, way dialysis works is we see all of our hemodialysis patients uh, once a week, and I have 50 or so outpatient hemodialysis patients. And so I'll spend, uh, I'll go to a couple of different dialysis units in the morning, see a few of my first shift dialysis patients. Then I'll uh, go to the hospital and I'll see hospital patients in the rest of the morning, and then I will have clinic patients in the afternoon, and then I'll sometimes steal away in the middle of the day to see dialysis patients on the second shift, and then on the end of the day, I'll often, though not always, uh, stop at a dialysis patient dialysis unit to see patients on a third shift. Describe, uh, explain what that first shift, second shift, third shift means. Right. So hemodialysis patients need to get dialysis three days a week. And so people are either on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday schedule or Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday schedule. And each dialysis patient typically runs about four hours. And so they will, uh, dialysis units will start patients off somewhere between five and six in the morning. And that first shift will go from uh, five to nine or 
6 to 10. And then at 10 to 11, the second shift will go on. And then at 2 to 3, the third shift will go on. And so, and so I have patients at multiple units on all of those different shifts, and you need to find a way to see them once a week. You talked about some hemodialysis patients. What types of patients are you treating? What sort of diseases are, do they have? So in the United States, uh, about 45% now of people that are on dialysis get there via diabetes. And then another 30 or so percent get there from hypertension. Those numbers are off probably by a little bit. But, you know, essentially uh, somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters will be diabetes and hypertension. And then the balance will be everything else that causes kidney disease, so glomerulonephritis, or um, severe acute kidney injury that never recovers, or uh, polycystic kidney disease, or uh, uh, cancer, myeloma, etc. Are there any procedures related with being a nephrologist? So um, there are nephrologists that are um, interventional nephrologists. That's not what I've chosen to do. Um, the procedures that uh, I do, boy, almost none, um, unless you consider spitting a urine and looking at a urinalysis <laughs> a procedure. But uh, uh, in my fellowship, um, I did a lot of kidney biopsies and put in a lot of uh, temporary dialysis access. Um, and then I have partners that are more interventional, and they'll continue. They still do kidney biopsies. And others um, will put in uh, peritoneal dialysis catheters and uh, hemodialysis catheters, ones that have a more interventional training, just not what I like to do. You had mentioned with your practice setting how it's a hybrid kind of community academic. Describe the, the academic aspect of it. How does that come into play as a nephrologist? Well, um, uh, I have a, a standard uh, uh, lecture that I give or uh, every once a month I, I give a morning report to the uh, the residents at our hospital to have a big internal medicine program and then uh, I also give lectures to our fellows we have uh, five nephrology fellows and um, you know I participate in that fellowship so I help interview and select the next year's fellows and uh, participate in evaluating the current fellows. Uh, I run one of my outpatient clinics is a fellow clinic, and so I will staff that fellow in that clinic. Um, I also have a standard um, position where I teach the uh, third-year medical students um, on a rotating basis. So essentially, it's a three-lecture series that I go through as each new group of internal medicine ro uh, third-years rotate through the hospital, and we go over fluids and electrolytes and acute kidney injury and uh, other basic nephrology concepts. Um, and uh, one of my responsibilities in the fellowship is I coordinate the fellow research program, research projects, and so I help them guide their, uh, it's a requirement for a fellowship program that they have to do a research, uh, research project. And so I help coordinate that and help them get that to fruition. Now, from the sounds of it, it didn't sound like you sought out an academic spot. So now that you have a little bit of academic responsibilities, how do you see the, those two sides of, of nephrology, one being in the community and the second now interacting with fellows and residents and, and the like? 
So really what attracted me to the job was the opportunity to teach. Like that was something that I really wanted to do. <clears throat> I just didn't, uh, I didn't want to be kind of locked into the bureaucracy of a traditional academic program um, with uh, lots of pressure to uh, publish and get grants. That seemed like something that uh, wouldn't be very fun to do. And so I, so I found this kind of hybrid model that fits my um, practice nicely. Okay, so you like to do. You weren't in the practice when it was bought or tr changed over. You sought this out specifically. No, no, this is how the practice has always has been. Is okay. that the uh, the hospital did not have a nephrology fellowship program, did not have a transplant program, and my practice was the driving force to bring both of those things to uh, to the hospital. Okay. Do you feel like as a nephrologist, you have enough family time or work-life balance, however you want to say that? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I work a lot and I enjoy my work. And uh, it's not shift work. This is much more like the traditional uh, physician model. Like I don't have set hours and I have, you know, call generally once a month but if a partner is on vacation or gets sick or has a death in the family it'll might be twice a month and sometimes it'll be three times in a month it's rare but it does happen you know it's uh and i don't think that's as much specialty driven as in the specific circumstance that i'm in um but nephrology in general it's uh it is a it's more of a traditional internist model it's not uh, a hospitalist it's not an er doc you're not uh you're not punching in and punching out you're working until the work is done and also i'm a business owner right and anybody who owns a business knows that you work harder because you own it and uh and so the work that i put in is is uh delivered back to me in in uh, monetary monetary rewards you said taking call once a month for for you. What does call look like? Are you just at home on the phone? Do you have to go in a lot? What does that look like? Right. So uh, we have to cover uh, all the patients that are in the hospital, and uh, so I will typically see uh, somewhere between uh, twenty and thirty patients in the hospital e each day that I'm on call on the weekend, on Saturday and Sunday. So there are full days. Okay. What does residency look like, the, the path to being a nephrologist residency and fellowship? Right. So you need to do uh, you need to do three years of internal medicine, or if you want to be a pediatric nephrologist, three years of pediatric nephrology. And then you need to get a nephrology fellowship, and they are traditionally two, uh, three years long, though probably more commonly today, they are two years. In the old model, it was one-year clinic and then two years of research. And now it's uh, two years of, for most fellowship programs, probably two years of uh, clinic uh, clinicals with uh, some clinical research in the second year. Okay, so less research heavy. They're moving towards. Yeah, I think I think that's what we're seeing. Okay, you mentioned that you specifically went to a med peds residency. Does that allow you or open it up? the possibility to see pediatric patients? So um, 
I spent a lot of time during my uh, adult fellowship doing pediatric nephrology. I did special rotations at a children's hospital um, and got a lot of experience doing that. And what I really concluded from that experience was that it really is a different specialty, that there is some crossover, but there's not all that much that the really the diseases you see are quite a bit different. Um, and that, uh, if I lived in an area that didn't have a pediatric nephrologist, I would absolutely see them. What other alternative would these parents have? But I live in Detroit, right? There's a children's hospital two miles away from our, four miles away from my hospital. Like it would be absurd for any parent to decide to take their kid to see an adult nephrologist when they had a pediatric nephrologist right now, essentially right next door. And though I thought about doing that early on in my training, as I began to appreciate what being a specialist really meant, it became to make less and less sense. Like if you want to be a generalist, don't subspecialize. If you want to be a specialist, well, then you need to be a specialist and you need to focus in on just the patients that you're going to be taking care of. What was that decision process like for you deciding to do adult nephrology versus pediatric nephrology to begin with for fellowship? Right. So the demands are, are uh, widely divergent. There's just, there's just not a lot of pediatric kidney disease. I mean, thank God there's not, right? And there's just an epidemic of, a, of uh, adult kidney disease. And so the demand for adult nephrologists way outstrips the demand for pediatric nephrologists. And I don't want to speak with authority on it, but you hear stories about people finishing pediatric nephrology fellowships and really not being able to find a job where they're able to use that training. And they will spend uh, sometimes years waiting for a position to to open up. And in the meantime, they do some other type of uh, pediatric work as a generalist, maybe with a little more hypertension than you normally would see, but they don't get to use their training. And, this is, and so it became a pretty, once I decided on this, it was a pretty easy decision to go into adult. You mentioned that you conduct fellowship interviews and decide who, who what, what lucky students are going to, or residents are going to become the, the next fellows for your program or the program at the hospital. What makes a competitive applicant to a nephrology uh, fellowship? And then is it competitive? So it's not competitive. I think there are two, I think it's close to two nephrology spots for every one applicant. And so it is, it is absolutely a buyer's market. Um, is that right? A buyer's or a seller's market? No, buyer's market. <laughs> the, 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 the buyer's market. Yeah. Yeah. The residents are in, are in, are in great positions that they are going to get offered interviews everywhere. And they will have their, uh, they will be able to put in a very aggressive rank list. There is still a rank, uh, a, a match system, um, and they should have an excellent experience. Very, very few people that want to be nephrologists are unable to become nephrologists. So that's good for them. Um, in terms of uh, what makes a good applicant, I'm sure it's the, the hardest thing or the thing that we most want to see is we want somebody who's always wanted to be a nephrologist or not excuse me not always wanted to be a nephrologist but that really wants to be a nephrologist rather than someone who says i want to be some sort of subspecialist and i can't get into cardiology right like that's the reality for a lot of our applicants 
But that's not what we want. What we're really looking for is someone who really loves the specialty and that wants to be a nephrologist. And it's not just uh, what's available to them. And so trying to pick that out of a out of a CV is really what we're looking for. And so the ways people demonstrate that, you know, pretty it's pretty obvious, right? It's uh, you've done research in nephrology. You have letters of recommendation from people that we know that are nephrologists. Um, you have uh, uh, done uh, maybe in a way rotation at our institution, a tryout rotation, and we've been able to work with you. You have contacted us early on and shown interest into it. All of these things uh, put you way higher on the rank list. The competitiveness for nephrology, having two spots for every one applicant, obviously not very competitive. Is is that something that that kind of waxes and wanes with the tide or is that something that you've seen for a while that nephrology just isn't a very popular specialty six years ago we had 200 applicants for our two or three spots a year this year we had i think we got 22 so something changed (laughs) the (laughs) demand fell off by 90 percent in six years what happened I think hospitalists happen. I, I think I think that the hospitalist boon, a huge new specialty, essentially emerged from nowhere, and they are having to staff up. They have tremendous demand. They can suck up every resident. They pay excellent salaries. They offer shift work, and they can do. They start that excellent salary the moment they on July. First, right? They finish the residency on July 30th and they immediately start getting paid. Well, if you do a nephrology fellowship, you got two more years of postgraduate training to go through. And then you get a job where you're going to work much more than 40 hours a week. Interesting theory. That's, a, that's, tough, to, that's tough to compete against. That's no, very tough, yeah. yeah. Right? Like, and, and in the end, you know, it, you know at, at the end of the rainbow, if you're a cardiologist or a GI doctor, there's a much higher salary. Than you would get as a hospitalist but at the end of the nephrology rainbow the salary may be modestly better or the same as with a hospitalist yeah, yeah. all right what is the the oppor- what do the opportunities to subspecialize look like so nephrology is a subspecialty so if you want to go further you can get uh you can get transplant certified and so that's usually one year after fellowship. And then the other thing you can get is there is this interventional nephrology. And that is less regulated. And uh, there are some fellowships that do that. But there are also, you know, two or three month uh, courses run by access companies, dialysis access companies uh, that will give you all the training you need to do those procedures um, without a formal fellowship. And there's no board certification for that, um, nor is there one for transplant, that is. Uh, and then there's other people that do uh, hypertension subspecialties or further subspecialization. And that's essentially just a test given by the American Society of Hypertension. And people will, you can do a fellowship in it um, and get formal training, but a lot of people will just uh, say, hey, this is something I'm really interested in. And they will do a lot of studying and a lot of additional reading take that test and gain, and gain that certification. What do you wish primary care providers knew about nephrology to make your job easier to help the patients? 
Yeah, you know, I, I don't have a lot of complaints about primary care doctors. I think they, I think they do a pretty good job with this. I think you know there was a there was a time uh, when people just looked at creatinine and didn't understand its relationship to GFR, but I think we're really past that, and they're doing a much better job with that. Um, you know, I would say uh, uh, be more aggressive with hypertension and maybe uh, less aggressive with glycemic control. Uh, that I, that I see I see a lot of patients uh, suffering from over the, too much emphasis on trying to get that A1C all the way down and causing a lot of hypoglycemic spells. But I mean, that's that's a, those are style issues more than knowledge gaps. I think. Um, uh, in my experience, primary care does a pretty good job of taking care of the major renal issues. What other specialties do you work closest with? So uh, uh, we work really closely with critical care. So all a lot of acute kidney injury patients will require dialysis. So we spend quite a bit of time in the ICU uh, providing dialysis, continuous forms of dialysis, uh, dealing with uh, toxicology for intoxications, um, uh, of course, we work with the ER a lot. Uh, uh, cardiology, there's a real uh, tight relationship between chronic kidney disease and uh, heart disease. And so uh, patients are always bouncing between those two specialties pretty uh, regularly. Um, and again, they're both end organ damage from diabetes and hypertension. So we have kind of a similar uh, patient population. And then endocrinology for the diabetes also. And we also cross consult. We get consults for the same diseases oftentimes. So uh, a hypercalcemia will sometimes go to endocrine and sometimes go to nephrology. Uh, and so we work with them quite a bit also. Does being a nephrologist give you any special skills or open up any doors for any opportunities outside of clinical medicine? Yeah. So the big one is um, dialysis medical director. So uh, every one of these dialysis units, and there are thousands of them around the country, can't operate without a medical director. And medical directors need to be uh, board certified in nephrology. And uh, this is a totally different type of medicine uh, than you've ever practiced before. You will be providing, you'll providing kind of population health. You'll be looking at all the infections that happened in the, you know, 80 patients there that month and trying to find, is there a pattern? Is there something that we're doing that's systematically causing these infections? You'll be going over the water treatment system, right? There's a phenomenal amount of water used in dialysis. Um, let's just, you know, uh, we can do the quick, we can do quick math. Uh, dialysate runs at 800 cc's per minute. Uh, times uh, 240 minutes. <laughs> you can tell you're a nephrologist. Plug in the yeah. numbers. Right. Times uh, times uh, 30 patients on a shift is um, uh, divide that by a thousand to get liters. Uh, so that's uh, 5,760 liters per shift, and we run three of them a day. But you're talking. You're getting close to 20,000 liters of water being treated in a dialysis unit every day yeah, and uh, keeping all that equipment uh, up to date and functioning is a continual uh, 
exercise and you have experts that help you with it, but the medical director sits at the top of all those experts and makes sure that they're doing a good job and going over the reports on water quality and infections and are we meeting targets on hemoglobin and albumin and phosphorus and uh, do we have the correct staffing? And you work, again, you have other experts. There's, uh, there's a nurse manager and there's a nutritionist and the, uh, excuse me, a dietitian and a social worker. Um, but you're, there's a lot of different benchmarks of dialysis quality and you end up being responsible for those. Uh, and so that's a interesting job and that's something that you, know, you kind of you spend a few hours uh, a week around your other practice taking care of this. And some of that is meetings and some of that is signing papers and some of that is going over reports. Um, but that's a, that's a huge opportunity in nephrology. Now you mentioned the, the, the words that you used. You said you need to be a board certified nephrologist. Why does the medical director for a dialysis unit have to be a nephrologist? Why can't it just be a, a normal physician that understands the, the business workings of a dialysis unit? So um, uh, the large dialysis organizations, there's a number of them. The big ones are Fresenius and DeVita. They have it in their bylaws that they will not allow a medical director to be anything but a board-certified nephrologist. Okay. There you have it. What do you wish you knew about nephrology before you went into it? I don't know if I have a good. I don't know if I have a good answer for that. I mean, it's. Uh, it's, uh, it's I feel like it's delivered what it promised to deliver, and it's been a. It's been a real rewarding career for me. So switching it up, how would what would you tell a brand new nephrologist coming in? What the the biggest takeaway that you've now learned over the the course of your career? Well, that your education, though you've studied a lot and you've finished, completed your boards and you feel really smart when you finish fellowship, that those first few years coming out of uh, fellowship are still a major learning moment. You are nowhere near the top of the mountain and there's lots of uh, uh, learning that's still going to go on. What do you um, like? Go ahead. Yeah, I, I think that would be what I would say. Be humble. What do you like the most about being a nephrologist? Uh, I love teaching, and I kind of like the longitudinal experience with my patients. I've had patients that I've taken care of as with pretty good kidney function, watched that kidney function deteriorate. I had them go on to dialysis, take care of them on dialysis for a year or so, watch them get a kidney transplant, then take care of them with a kidney transplant. It's just being able to see and take care of patients through all those different phases of their kidney disease is really great. On the flip side, what do you like the least? Um, those four dialysis visits a month for each dialysis patient, it's overkill. I don't need to do that that much. And that requirement to see them four times is burdensome. It ends up being, I think, a lot of busy work. I think I would get, I could do all the medically important stuff in two visits. And so it feels unnecessarily tiresome. Is that an insurance-driven thing or something else? 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a reimbursement thing. We get You get reimbursed X amount for two visits and X plus amounts for four visits. And uh, it's, you know, it's a private practice and the partners, we've all decided that we're going to do four visits. And so it's a burden I carry. <laughs> okay. Do you see whether it's technology or disease progressions or changes, do you see any major changes coming to nephrology? Uh, nephrology, it was, I mean, you know, the thing to think about, the classic one is the cardiothoracic surgeons, right? They were cabbage doctors. This is what was driving the volume for their business. And when the cardiologists developed the techniques and technology to take over much of uh, uh, coronary vascular disease, the volume on cabbage just dropped through the floor. I mean, we've seen it in our hospital. Our hospital was completely oriented around CT surgery, did a, did a ton of bypass surgeries, and the volume has evaporated. And they were, you know, they didn't want to admit it, but they were really a one procedure specialty. And um, nephrology is highly dependent on dialysis. And if a new technology comes on, and I don't see anything on the horizon, but sometimes what you don't see doesn't mean that it's not there, uh, were to eliminate uh, dialysis or dramatically reduce its need, it would be a major earthquake for the specialty. I've seen I've seen some stuff floating around about with with nanotechnology creating smaller and smaller filters to create artificial kidneys that can be implanted. Is that something that you don't see being viable for a long time? Yes. <laughs> or you hope? No, it's not that I hope. I mean, I would love for that technology to work. I just I, I look at that technology. And it seems to not address the biggest problem with current dialysis, which is access, which is if you look at what causes the most hospital days and the most complications on dialysis, it is the mere process of getting the blood in and out of the body safely. And those technologies do not address that. And so I kind of feel like it's cool. And it would be really neat, and I'd love to see that work. But uh, like the the wearable artificial kidney, which gets a lot of press, uh, I look at that and I was like, really, we're going to take the access, which is already the most fragile component, and now we're going to let the person move around and live their life with that access working? <laughs> God forbid a, a, a hose comes undone and the person <laughs> just bleeds out immediately. <laughs> That's exactly that's exactly yeah. right. So maybe I, maybe I'm the person who doesn't understand it, and maybe they've yeah. already solved that problem. But I'm highly skeptical. Uh, I would love to see that. There are other implantable solutions that would may not have the access problems, and maybe because you wear this thing all the time, the flows are much lower, and so the access is not as complex. But I am skeptical. I would love to see it come to fruition. But I'm not losing sleep over that concern. If you had to do it all over again, would you still choose nephrology? In a second. What last words of wisdom do you have for the pre-med or even the internal medicine resident right now thinking about nephrology as a career? 
So if you think the kidney is somewhat interesting, but you're intimidated by how difficult it is, it's not that difficult. That when you get to fellowship, you will finally spend the time learning the kidney from its very fundamentals, and you will build a model of how it works in your brain. And then once you have that model, everything makes sense and it all falls into place. And that that is difficult to understand how much simpler everything will be when that happens. You just got to trust that once you get it, you get it. And then it's not very hard. I hear a lot of people throw away or ignore nephrology, say that they could never do that because they're not smart enough. And I just, I don't think it's not a cleverness thing. If you're interested in it, pursue it. It's not that hard. All right. So there you have it. Again, that was Dr. Joel Toff, academic nephrologist. One question that I forgot to ask Dr. Toff was, is there a bias among DOs? And so I reached out to him afterwards and he says, we have a DO that is on the board of our practice and will likely be the next CEO. Also, our assistant program director is a DO. So no, not even close to having a bias. We also have a Caribbean graduate who is an excellent doctor as a partner. Might be an interesting, might be interesting to interview him. So there you go. There is, according to Dr. Toff, not a big DO bias out there. So if you are interested in going to an osteopathic medical school, or if you are an osteopathic medical student uh, or osteopathic resident looking at nephrology, there's, there's not a big bias out there for you. If you have any questions about nephrology, he loves answering questions. He is a Twitter maven. He's written books all about nephrology. You can go hit him up. He's at kidney underscore boy on Twitter. Again, at kidney underscore underscore boy on Twitter. Go say hi. Let him know you heard about him here on the Specialty Stories podcast. Thank you, Joel, for your time, for coming on the podcast and sharing your wisdom about nephrology and the future of nephrology. If you have any specialties you would like me to cover sooner rather than later, shoot me an email, ryan at medicalschoolhq.net. What I'm going to be trying to do as we move forward is be a little bit more organized and try to batch these comparison episodes. So for instance, if I was a little more organized to begin with, we would have had Dr. Roby, the episode six about private practice nephrology, and then immediately following the next week, this episode here with an academic nephrologist. So I want to try to batch um, the specialties a little bit closer together. It'll make it easier for me to find people that way too, so I know what specialties I'm looking for. So if you have any thoughts on specialties, again, shoot me an email, ryan at medical school hq.net. If you enjoy this podcast, I'd love for you to share it with somebody. Take their phone, grab it from them, give it back eventually, but make sure to subscribe to this podcast. And if they're pre-med, all the other podcasts here at the MedEd Media Network. Have a great week. We'll see you next week here at the Specialty Stories.